Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to March's edition of Recharge, the podcast of Battery Materials Review. In this month's podcast, I'll do a quick recap of all the month's news from Battery Materials Review, and then we'll head into the interviews. The topic for this month is battery recycling, which is a particularly relevant topic for the sector currently. We start off with Hans-Erik Mellin, a recycling consultant with Circular Energy Storage, who gives us some strategic thoughts on the sector. And then we talk to Adrian Griffin, Managing Director of ASX-listed Lithium Australia, about his company's recycling business and its planned spin-out to create the world's only listed pure-play battery recycling stock. But first, a recap of some of the month's features, news, and analysis from Battery Materials Review. This month's first focus article is on stationary storage, which is less appreciated as a driver of battery raw materials demand than electric vehicles, but still has significant potential. Deployments fell in 2019, but we highlight why we think 2020 is likely to be a bounce back year, particularly in the US, and we also discuss the potential of other battery chemistries such as flow batteries to challenge lithium-ion's dominance, particularly in utility-scale storage. In our second focus article, we discuss the costs of installing battery charging infrastructure and suggest that these costs may be being underestimated given the focus on fast charging. Moving on now onto some of the key raw materials news items. Let's discuss reporting first of all. Q4 financial results season was a bit like the slow drip, drip, drip of Chinese water torture, as one company after another reported poor results. However, out of the calls came a couple of interesting takeaways, most significantly about the changing purchasing behaviour by downstream users of materials, which was highlighted by both Albemarle and Livent. Both noted how active auto OEMs are becoming in the lithium supply chain as they try to lock up long-term material supplies. Moving on to cobalt, we were particularly interested to hear that the trader Trafigura has reportedly approached the government of the DRC about financing the state-controlled entity that's being set up to buy all of the country's artisanal cobalt production. It could cost the government up to 100 million US dollars to fund initial purchases, and as we flagged in last month's issue, it could very well be difficult for them to place the material in the market. A partnership with Trafigura would help them on both of those counts. In rare earths, China increased its first half production quota, but we wonder whether miners will be able to produce up to that level given the mining and processing shutdowns caused by the coronavirus. Roskill estimated that 70-80% to of Chinese rare earth processing capacity was shuttered during February. In exploration and development news this month, there were further positive drilling results from Garibaldi Resources' Nickel Mountain Project in British Columbia, with bumper, nickel, copper and PGM grades, as well as byproduct cobalt. While there were a number of development reports, nothing really stood out for us on the positive side, although there were some complete wastes of paper. It was another tough month for financing in February, given the volatility in equity markets, and most of the capital raised was debt. Capital raised for battery materials is now down 83% year-to-date, and there's not much sign of a recovery until the second half of 2020 at the earliest. This is starting to be a real concern for the next generation of battery materials projects. Higher prices are needed for equity funding, but they're just not likely in the near term which means that there's likely to be a delay in funding new projects 
just as demand for batteries and battery materials is starting to ramp up. A shortage of raw materials still has the potential to derail the larger battery event, so it's a real concern going forward. Looking downstream now, and there are a lot of column inches written this month about Tesla's decision to go for LFP batteries for some of its Chinese Model 3s. I was genuinely surprised given the amount that it's invested in NCA batteries, but I don't see it as a major concern for cobalt and nickel, given that we're only talking about low-end models and the Model 3 only had a 2% market share in China in 2019. A report by Bloomberg New Energy Finance highlighted that the energy density of EV batteries has trebled in the past 10 years and now stands close to 300 watt-hours per kilogram. This has been one of the major drivers of the fall in battery costs, but unfortunately we're pretty close to the theoretical maximum for current battery chemistries, so it seems any further gains are likely to have to come from manufacturing efficiencies. Which, by the way, is quite viable in my view because I think that manufacturing efficiency gains are underestimated by the market. It seems that Kia is the latest OEM to suffer battery shortages in February. While previous automakers were suffering issues with LG Chem-supplied batteries, this time the issue is with batteries supplied by SK Innovation. What becomes clear from this is that perhaps the industry was a bit overambitious about the time needed to ramp up production in new battery factories, and maybe we need to factor that into our models going forward. Moving on to analysis now, and the big news for the month, in some quarters anyway, was the weakness in Chinese EV sales. Now, while that is relevant and is likely to become worse in February, for me, the excitement was really in the large jump in European EV sales in January, which confirms our previously stated viewpoint that European EV sales growth is set to increase massively this year. European EV sales could hit a million units in 2020, which is a big, big number and could start to rival the size of China's market in the near term. Obviously, coronavirus is a big unknown, and we still don't know how much it's going to impact demand in the near term. For our materials ranking, we reiterated cobalt in second place in February. Cobalt sulfate prices increased for the month by the most among the battery materials. And we also demoted nickel two places due to our concern about how exchange-traded materials will react with coronavirus concerns impacting markets we expect non-exchange traded metals to outperform in the near term. It's not going to be a surprise for most listeners that February was a tough, tough market for battery materials equities. The overall market gave up 8% and most of our battery materials sub-indices were down by more. The outperformers were our downstream basket, which at 1% down once again proved most defensive, our brine lithium one, which reacted to M&A in the sector, and our nickel basket, which was only down 5% after some tough months recently. That's the end of our news roundup for this issue. If you have any questions on any of the topics I've covered, please contact me or you can find more information on our website at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. Moving on to our interviews now. We're delighted today to welcome Hans-Erik Mellon to Recharge. Hans-Erik is Director of Circular Energy Storage, a London-based strategy consultancy which focuses on the lithium-ion battery life cycle management chain, and he's author of a number of major reports on the cycling industry, including a really fascinating report from June last year with the Swedish Energy Agency, which is well worth a read if you're so inclined. Hans-Erik, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can we start with last year's report for the Swedish Energy Agency? 
obviously there are a lot of myths in the area of battery recycling, most notably about how many batteries are actually recycled. And you debunk a lot of those in that report. Can you just give a quick summary of your findings in terms of what percentage of lithium-ion batteries are currently being recycled globally? Sure, I would love to. First, about the report. It's a little bit funny, in fact, because what caught most people's attention of the report was really what you were asking about now. I mean, the status of the the recycling around the world and what actual processes are out there. The purpose with the the report was primarily really to to dig into how much research is done in in the field of battery recycling and also in reuse and to some extent sustainability of batteries. And to do that, I, I used my own research in an introductory chapter where I basically show what, what is really happening in the industry. So the purpose for the Swedish Energy Agency was really to get the baseline to understand what is industry practice today, what is already done in the research field around the world in order to be able to fund the research in, in, in Sweden and, and in some to some extent in the Nordic countries. And if we look at those findings, which is really from previous reports that Circle Energy Storage has been publishing, Recycling of lithium-ion batteries has been going on for many, many years. And it is an activity that is more happening in Asia than in North America or in, in, in Europe. The main reason for that is really that that is where they make batteries. So if you have a battery material industry, there you also obviously have a need for all those raw material that goes into, into that production. And it's particularly in China, but also in South Korea, it has been very important to use recycled batteries as a feedstock for this. And that is, in fact, very much reflected also in the research. If you look at where research about re- recycling of lithium-ion batteries has been going on, it is really in China. More than half of the research published in English has been published by Chinese universities and Chinese researchers. So it's it's really an Asian practice in that sense. And I think that is the main reason, or, or at least one of the main reasons for why our perception of lithium-ion battery recycling is incorrect in many ways, because we perceive batteries not being recycled only because they are not really recycled here. But that doesn't really mean that they are not recycled at all. Most of the batteries today, they are, first of all, they come from portable applications, so from mobile phones, laptops, and, and tablets. About 80% of the, the batteries that reach end of life today come from those kind of applications. And secondly, these applications, they often get exported because of a large refurbishment industry in Asia. That is why these applications or these devices, they, they never reach the battery recyclers, they don't even reach the e-waste recyclers. They reach traders and refurbishment companies and get exported long before the, the batteries actually can make it to the collection boxes in Europe or in North America. And that is why we don't really see so much lithium-ion batteries being recycled in Europe. But again, they are recycled, they're just not recycled here. Okay. And you put sort of an estimate. So I think the widely accepted 
figure was something like 5%, I think, for global battery recycling. But in that report, you put an estimate which was higher than that. Could you just sort of go through some of the thinking on that? Yes, yeah, so, so it's actually quite difficult to, to put a, a good number on it. And first of all, there is really no universal definition of what is the recycling rate. The only, I mean, more commonly used recycling rate is what you can find in the battery directive in the European Union, where it says that portable batteries should have a collection rate of 45% of those batteries that were placed on the markets on an average of the last three years. But that is mainly designed for single-use batteries, such as alkaline batteries and primary lithium. Obviously, lithium-ion batteries are used for much longer than that. And even though they can have quite short life in your mobile phone, of course, but usually they, they have longer lives than, than three years. First of all, you, you have to set an actual definition. And what we find is a good definition is how much of the batteries that, are, that should be recycled are recycled. So we use a, a measurement which we call end of life. And that is fairly much an estimate, a theoretical estimate. We build it upon what we know about the usage of these batteries. And that is also why we follow really how batteries are used and how for how long time people are using them in the different kind of applications. Because nobody really has to report when they stop using their mobile phone or when they switch the battery. And even if they put it in a container or whatever, Nobody really has to report that. And nobody really has to report when they turn that into a scrap dealer or, or anything. So it's, um, it, it's very much a theoretical number to, to understand when are the batteries that we, we know we were placing on the market, when will they actually reach end of life? But what we find is a good estimate is if we know how much batteries that most probably were reaching end of life last year, how many of those batteries were recycled. But then we come to another problem, and that is we have a reuse sector. So a lot of the batteries are reused. So the batteries that are being reused, they will also be recycled when they finally reach the real end of life. So there is a huge lag in between what is recycled and what is reaching end of life. And we talk a lot today about second life of EV batteries, but Portable batteries have been reused for a long time. Laptop batteries have been reused in applications such as power banks and, and smaller packs used in other like toys and devices. So there have always been a huge lag in between lithium-ion batteries reaching end of life and what is available for recycling. But if we still want to have a, a number, the amount of batteries that we are recycling today is about 50% of the batteries that are reaching end of life. But what's important, though, is that these are not really the same batteries. Given that EVs really have only been around, not even commercially, I guess, but uh, at elevated volumes for a couple of years, and that most EV batteries would be expected to last for eight to 10 years, I would suggest then that we're not going to be in a position to recycle large amounts of EV batteries within the next five to 10 years. Is that correct? It's, it's still primarily going to be consumer batteries that are being recycled? Yes, it's correct. Mainly of that reason that you mentioned. Then, of course, I mean, because we have such a take-up right now in the volumes, that means basically we will have more batteries from cars that 
have failures or crashes or whatever from the batteries in the cars we are placing on the market right now, then what we will have real end-of-life batteries from the cars we placed on the market 10 years ago. So, I mean, the, the, the first cars, as I say, they, they came about 2010. You had the first Nissan Leaf and Chevy Volt in the U.S., and we still see very few of those batteries. There have been, of some models, it have been definitely more than from others because some batteries were not that great in the beginning. But from 2012 to 2013, we have seen very good batteries in most of the cars. We have very few that is actually reaching end of life. So yes, we will continue to see for the next five years a dominance of portable batteries. But that is really on a global scale, again, because most of the portable batteries, they uh, are not recycled in in Europe or in North America. And that is mainly because of the refurbishment part of this. So, And it's actually the devices that leaves Europe, not so much the, the batteries. But then you have other applications, such as what we call personal mobility, scooters or e-bikes, applications which are cycled a little bit harder than the cars because you, I mean, you're using them many times every day. And especially if they are in a sharing program, they are, are used quite heavily. So those batteries will be quite a significant volume, not huge, but you will notice them in the recycling center for, for the coming years. And you also have other more commercial industrial applications such as robots, automated guided vehicles, forklifts, which are traditionally the electric forklifts and robots have been using lead-acid batteries, but now increasingly they switch to lithium-ion. And they, and they are basically used 24-7, so they will also come much earlier than the electric car batteries. And as I understand it, the issue really with recycling to some extent in the Western world is collection mechanisms. Could you perhaps talk a little bit about the collection mechanisms that are extant in, in Asia and, and possibly compare that a little bit with what we see in in Europe, North America, etc. It is very different if if we look at portable batteries and batteries that are kind of close to portable batteries, such as e-bike batteries, for instance, compared to more industrial, larger batteries built into very advanced applications, such as cars or forklifts or, or whatever. Basically, you yourself, or I don't know, but most people don't really touch lithium-ion batteries. They never never held a lithium-ion battery. You might have held a, a pack for your drill or for uh, your switch battery in a camera. But usually, all lithium-ion batteries are built in into the devices. So that means really that the battery, unless you have a battery which you switch off and which you might do for, for power tools, for instance, but most, I mean, private persons don't really do that either. They ditch it when they actually ditch the or, or the, the scrap the, the the whole device. So that means the batteries really follow the device. So the device is more important than the battery. And if you compare that with other kind of battery recycling or battery collection with single-use batteries, I mean, there we always switch the battery, and then it made sense to really focus on the battery. So that means that. It's not the battery collectors or battery sorters that receive most of the lithium-ion batteries. It's really the e-waste companies. And as I mentioned before, many times it's like refurbishment companies that actually receive the, the, the phones. I mean, with the smartphone, we got an international device which you can use in any kind of language 
when in any kind of signs. So, so that means it became really an international commodity that really fueled the the refurbishment market, which is huge today. That is a very important part of it. But when it comes to the industrial batteries, such as EV batteries, I mean, you, in one way, you have a similar phenomenon. I mean, we, we, we do export cars from the UK, for instance. We, we export cars to New Zealand or to, to South Africa, other countries. I think just in New Zealand, there are about 10 to maybe 15,000 Nissan Leafs that primarily come from Japan, but also from the UK. So those are cars with batteries that obviously were placed on these these markets, but will not be recycled there because they, they were exported just like mobile phones have been exported. And I think we will see more of that. There is no reason why we, we wouldn't export electric cars just in the way that we have been exported internal combustion engine vehicles. But when it comes to batteries that really will be changed or switched and taken out of the car, I mean, that is done in a fairly organized manner in in a workshop or uh, at the OEM's workshop or whatever. And that is basically taken care of by companies that usually are, are responsible or they care about their own responsibility. So I would say that we have a 100% collection of EV batteries. And even if it would be somebody that were not really interested in the environment or pollution or whatever, these batteries are valuable. A Tesla battery today, you can sell that on eBay for about ten to $20,000, basically. So um, very few of these batteries will just be thrown away. People will find buyers for them and they still can get very good money for them and even for modules and um, other parts of the batteries as well. So what I think most people don't realize is that in the battery market, the simple rule is that the highest bidder will always get the batteries. If you will reuse a battery, you, you are able to pay more for the battery and then if you just will recycle it. And that means that reuse company will always get the hands on the batteries first. And then it depends really where, where that market is. And that is also one reason when, when sometimes recyclers and battery companies, they are not really happy about Second Life to reuse the batteries in energy storage applications because there is a delay between when the battery is reaching end of life and will they become available for recycling. But I think they should be very happy for it because it really means that the, the batteries are dying here in Europe. Otherwise, we might see these batteries going to other markets. And could you just talk about the key recycling technologies that are currently in use? Uh, we hear obviously a lot about hydromet metallurgy or pyrometallurgy. Yeah, so basically all recycling technologies end in a hydrometallurgical process of some kind. I mean, of course, you, you also could have more or less efficient methods where you basically use a few elements of the batteries and maybe some even of the least valuable, such as aluminium or, or, or copper. But usually, when we talk about battery recycling, we, we talk about something that will end up in a hydrometallurgical treatment. And what is basically happening is uh, how you are, you are leaching the, the, the active materials and you selectively, you, you're able to recover cobalt, nickel, manganese, or depending on what you actually have in the, the chemistries that you are recycling. And also depending on how advanced methods you are using, I mean, so all these materials will come in, 
in the form of a, of a sulfate. You end up with cobalt and nickel sulfates, which are tradable commodities, basically. Or you could do another step and, and, and produce precursors or even cathode materials of, of these materials. So if you precursor, you would end up with a nickel cobalt manganese hydroxide based on what you actually have in your infeed. Not so many companies can do that today because there is not so much nickel in the batteries that we are recycling. But if you recycle a lot of production waste, then it's easier to do that. But then you have the pre-steps before the hydrometallurgical treatment. And there we have different kind of routes. So we have one parametallurgical route where you you can do anything from, from roasting or calcinating the batteries, which can be used basically to, to deactivate the batteries, but also to um, remove the electrolyte and to make them easier basically to go into the hydrometallurgical process. But you can also use smelting. And then you will end up in the alloy with basically with cobalt, nickel, and, and, and copper and iron. This is not the end, obviously. So, so this alloy will be, will be then leached in a hydrometallurgical treatment. So the pyro part, which we often talk about, is basically just a pre-step to, to the hydro. And the alternative to the pyro is a mechanical treatment where you first deactivate the batteries, not always, but many times in, in some kind of brine. And then you are shredding the batteries to open them up and makes it easier for the, the hydrometallurgical process to do its, uh, do its job. So basically two routes, a mechanical pre-step with hydro afterwards or a pyro pre-step with hydro afterwards. Then there are other kind of methods that are tested in China. There are especially for LFP batteries, and some methods that are purely dry, basically a mechanical method where you retain the cathode material from LFP batteries, which is really interesting. I haven't seen it in huge scale, but especially for that battery, I think it's important. In the US, they always been, I mean, several companies and institutes uh, have been done a lot of research in also what they call direct recycling to really retain the capacity of the especially of the cathode material, but, but uh, potentially also of the anode. But that is not something we have in scale. So mainly today, if you look at the most, the biggest volume of batteries is recycled through a mechanical route with some pyro step, uh, usually calcination or pyrolysis, and then going into a hydro step. And can you say current prices with current technologies, is battery recycling economically viable? And if not, what sort of process improvements are necessary or, or how high the prices, the materials prices need to go? So it, mostly it depends really where you are in the value chain. So if you sit with a, a big car battery that no one else has been disassembled before, you have to transport it, you have to pay somebody to disassemble it and just the time that it's required to, to do that. If somebody is not skilled in, in it, that will be very, very costly, obviously then you should transport the other components in different steps and you will then shred and, uh, yeah, I mean, start to do whatever process you have available for it. That is quite costly. If you're a recycler starting with the shredding or a smelting process and you get cells on your doorstep, that's another thing. I mean, then definitely if you have a, a fair amount of cobalt and nickel in the batteries, that should definitely be valuable or, or profitable. 
just like any kind of process, is really about scale. You need fairly large scale, especially if the materials are not that valuable. If you only recycle LCO batteries, which have about 20% cobalt inside, you're fine with a fairly small process. But if you would go with NCM batteries or, or even LFP batteries, where you basically only can recover the aluminium and the copper and the lithium, then you, you, re, you need huge scale, really. But yes, I mean, if you have an efficient process, I, I don't see why it wouldn't be profitable. So of course it is. I mean, that is what most of the startups are looking at. That is where the Chinese and the South Korean companies are. I mean, they are, they are paying for the batteries. Even in China, even LFP batteries, you have to pay for it to get hold of it. Otherwise, somebody else will. Even the margins are very slim. But uh, for NCM batteries, I mean, it's really good business. And we saw prices of NCM batteries a year ago of about $2 a kilo uh, that the recyclable buying batteries for, uh, for $2 a kilo. LCO batteries have been as high as $7 a kilo. So, yes, absolutely, it's profitable. And can I just ask, how environmentally friendly is the recycling process? I mean, what's the sort of uh, energy intensity, the water intensity of the process? So, usually, if you look in life cycle assessments, not a lot uh, has been done, really, on, on recycling, especially not using prim- primary data. And, in fact, there haven't been a lot of L- LC or uh, life cycle assessments of um, of anything using primary data in the battery world, unfortunately. But um, usually, uh, I mean, battery recycling, it doesn't contribute a lot to the CO2 footprint, for instance, to the energy intensity, because basically it replaces mining and all the activities in, in the mining and in the first refining step of the materials. But you usually you, you will still end up with, to produce the the precursor and the cathode materials and and of course to produce the, or, or apply the cathode on the current collectorate in the cell production. And that is really where the energy intensity is in the battery production. So by recycling batteries, usually it, it gives a, a slight positive contribution if you compare with primary or, or, or virgin materials, but it's not a huge deal in that sense. Then you obviously, I mean, you get a lot of waste from byproducts and uh, from the chemicals that you are using in hydrogen metallurgical treatments. But that is just like in mining, uh, where you also use basically the same kind of methods. You obviously have to deal with that. And we see a lot of companies that deal with that in a very good way. And of course, as always in any kind of production, there are companies that are not doing it in the way you, you want it to. But if you look at China, for instance, they put last year they put much higher requirements on the battery recyclers uh, on the local pollution and emission levels. So um, mostly it it is really good. But but then, of course, recycling is an opportunity for a lot of people. You can basically just take a bucket and start to collect batteries. And of course, there are always smaller companies that are not doing it in a the way you, you wanted them to do it. And just quickly, what sort of recoveries of metals are viable from the recycling process? What sort of range of recoveries? I mean, usually, if you really have a process with the intention to, to, to recover the uh, yeah, both lithium, the transition metals in the, uh, in the cathode, you usually are at 
at least 98% of the, the nickel, the cobalt, manganese, lithium is often very high as well. Not always all metals are recovered. Lithium is such an example. It hasn't always, I mean, it's very little lithium in a battery. So it hasn't always been profitable and it really depends on what kind of process you have. So even if it's, you can recover it, you're not always doing that, but um, more and more we see that. And in fact, in, in China, they, they now have new limits saying that recyclers should achieve at least 98% of the nickel and cobalt and 85% of the lithium. And most companies don't have any problems to achieve that. And if I look at recycling as a way potentially to substitute for a lack of investment in raw material production for battery raw materials, how much precursor material would it be possible to produce from recycling, say, by 2025? (laughs) Yes, I don't really have those numbers right now, but I mean, it's not a huge amount. And especially not on a, on a precursor level because you don't have a lot of nickel to use. The only metal that where recycling is really important today is cobalt because we, we have a legacy material well, with LCO batteries with 20% cobalt inside. And now we are producing batteries with 3 to even like 2% cobalt. So we have a situation where we are recycling batteries with more cobalt than those batteries that we are producing, which is a good thing. So cobalt is already a, a material that for which recycling is really important. But if we will just continue to make portable batteries or those similar kind of applications such as e-bikes, recycling could have been quite important. But now the growth here from 2020 to 2030 is on an order of a magnitude. So it's really, really hard for the recycling to keep up. And also, these are placed in applications that now last around 10 to even 15 years uh, from previously being used in three to six years. So obviously, it will take a very, very long time until recycling will be important for the total amount of material that we are using. That said, recycling as an activity and recycling for particular companies can be highly important, really, because we will see a lot of bumps in the road. We will see a lot of shortages over time. And to have an efficient recycling process for, for battery material makers will be very important to always be able to, to have a base in the material that they can source. That's uh, fascinating. Hans-Erik Mellin, thanks very much indeed for your time. Thanks a lot. And moving on now. I'm very pleased to welcome Adrian Griffin, who's Managing Director of ASX-listed Lithium Australia today. Lithium Australia is involved in a number of projects focusing on technology to target production of battery raw materials. Last year, it acquired a share in an existing battery recycling business in Virostream. Adrian, thanks very much for joining us today. Absolute pleasure, Matt. Could you talk a little bit about your strategic thinking with regards to the EnviroStream acquisition? What were the aspects of that business that made it a must-have for you guys? It's a really good question. We started life in the recycling game looking at the metallurgy that was required to recycle the metals within the batteries. Soon came to the conclusion that that was pretty useless if you couldn't collect the battery. So we started looking at what other recyclers had been doing 
and we located a company, Envirostream, based in Melbourne that had really sorted out the collection mechanisms and they had a collection network through Victoria that was second to none. So we looked at that and said, we've just got to buy the company. And can you give us a little bit more detail about the actual recycling process at Envirostream? What, what, what do they actually do once they've collected the batteries? Collection, as I mentioned, is a, a key part, but on the assumption that you have collected those, the batteries get sorted into various categories. When you collect batteries, you get a, a mixture of all sorts of bits and pieces. You, you get uh, nickel cadmium batteries, nickel hydride, a lot of alkaline batteries, and of course, the, the sought-after ones that uh, we're focused on being the lithium-ion batteries. So they have to be sorted first up to make sure you don't mix up all, all the chemistries. Somewhat unfortunately, at the moment, it's done manually. We haven't found a better way of doing it. There are commercially available automated sorting systems, but uh, the state you get the batteries in, often they're corroded, the packaging is damaged. So at the moment, we think the uh, most effective way of doing that is manually. So we manually sort the batteries. We take the uh, lithium-ion batteries, then uh, run those through a shredding and separation process. So it's physical processing that reduces the battery to a pile of shredded materials, which consist of metal being metal from the current collector. So you've got uh, aluminium and, and copper foil. You've got steel from some of the structural components, a lot of, lot of plastic. And then when you pull all of those bits and pieces out that go back into your standard recycling businesses, you're left with a residue, and that residue is a black powder, often referred to as black powder or mixed metal dust. And that, at the moment, we're sending that, – that was our focus when we started looking at the metallurgical work required for the recovery and refining of these metals. At the moment, because of the volumes of batteries available in Australia, which is relatively small, we're exporting that stuff to South Korea, to Sungil High Tech, who are probably the largest refiner of that sort of material on a global basis, and they're, they're refining it and it's going back into the battery industry. I've got to say that uh, the yields that we're getting out of those batteries in terms of uh, a mass yield are very high, up around 93 94%, as opposed to the closest competitor on a global scale, which is only about 65%. To a large extent, the difference isn't great recovery on the mixed metal dust. The difference is the fact that we are physically recovering and recycling the uh, plastics, which amount to about uh, 20% of the mass. And that is going into a process that's run by another company in in Melbourne that uh, mixes that plastic with waste oil, treats it thermally and produces a synthetic bitumen for surfacing a road. So the 20% additional material we recover does have a very useful application. And what sort of lithium-ion chemistry predominates in the batteries that you're collecting? And does the type of chemistry impact your product slate significantly? Yeah, well, I think it will ultimately. It's not at the moment. But the uh, preponderance of batteries that are coming through now, the, the early consumer electronics products, are things like laptops and iPhones and, and power tools, and a lot of those 
add uh, lithium cobalt oxide batteries. So on that basis, the economics of processing those materials heavily skewed towards cobalt revenue. However, over a period of time, and it's starting to change already even with uh, small consumer items, we can see the chemistry moving towards NMC, and that will certainly be the case as EV batteries go past the end of their useful life and become part of that product mix. At the moment, we are processing on a trial basis batteries for a number of the original equipment manufacturers, the, the automotive components, and we anticipate that they will become probably the, the largest proportion of weight in those recyclable batteries in the near future. So that'll be NMC, nickel, manganese, cobalt-type com- combinations. And how do you plan to or how do you hope to improve the collection mechanisms for EnviroStream going forward? Uh, to some extent, it's an issue with respect to scale. We have a number of very strong partnerships there, including LG Chem, and I think LG Chem take the, the view that they would prefer to partner with us now than have legislation push them into a stewardship scheme that might be costly and cumbersome. And I've got to say the Australian government is contemplating doing that if the industry itself doesn't implement one that uh, is effective on a voluntary basis. So we become a, a principal plank in all of that. So it's, it's all about collection and partnerships to do that collecting. And then it's about volume on top of that. So we've put together, as I say, a lot of partnerships, including hardware stores, retailers, the original equipment manufacturers and and, uh, battery suppliers to do that. But of course, there's only a certain volume of batteries available within a specific area. So the next stages will be expanding our collection mechanisms out of Victoria and into New South Wales and Queensland. We're also looking at overseas opportunities because the market in general is serviced very poorly by recyclers. And part of that you can see in the statistics in that uh, globally there's only about 9% of them getting back into the supply chain. Here in Australia it's more like three, but globally nine. China has a, a reasonably good track record. Some of the European countries, Norway and Switzerland in particular, do also, but uh, the rest of the world's lagging behind it. In the UK, really, there's almost none. Most of the recovered material is being exported to France. So there are opportunities there galore. We are certainly talking to partners or potential partners in some of those critical jurisdictions where there's very little competition and plenty of battery material available. And do you see sort of governments being major actors in Australia, but also overseas in, in, in terms of pushing recycling? Well, I've got to be very careful what I say here. Governments can become an impediment, of course, but I think uh, the first thing governments can do that's very positive, and it has been done in Victoria, is uh, legislate the banning of those sorts of materials going into landfill, because there are a lot of toxic components, and they do contaminate soil and groundwater. But not only that, there's a commercial imperative, of course, in that those batteries contain a lot of valuable metal. And why would you put all the energy into producing those metals and then just throw them away at the end of their useful life? It makes absolutely no commercial sense to do that. So I think the the first thing that uh, governments can do to make sure that people are more aware is 
ban those materials from landfill and then they need to work with industry to make sure there are sufficient collection sites easily accessible to the public and visible so people know where to take these things. Part of the problem, and it's a a problem for me, and I I follow the industry quite closely, but uh, I would have a lot of difficulty telling anyone where to dump their waste batteries in Perth. So you can't, and I, I have some knowledge in the field, of course, so you can't expect the general public to simply catch on and say, well, this is what I'm going to do. There needs to be education, there needs to be reward, and you need to make the system very easy. And the government can help with all those things. Okay, great. So what are your plans for the future development of EnviroStream going forward? From here, we're planning on taking it to IPO. That will, of course, be subject to market acceptance and the conditions of the market at the time, but we're preparing for that now. And that's so we can capitalise that as a standalone business and use the money raised to increase our expansion plans. And effectively, that'll pay for expansion into places like New South Wales, which of course is just north of Victoria on the east coast of Australia, and Queensland and other locations around the world. And just finally, on the recycling side, how do you think that your business is differentiated from other listed battery recycling companies that are around at the moment? Uh, well, I think the first thing you'd have to tell me is who are the listed battery recycling companies. So I'll ask you a question. <laughs> I guess they're the businesses like, for instance, Umicore's uh, recycling business, which is obviously a tiny percentage of, the, of their uh, revenue, and uh, Neo Metals and American Manganese, those sort of guys. I think if you, if you look at Umicore, of course, is uh, in full-scale production. So they're a standout example. How do we differentiate ourselves from Umicore? The, the fact that we are, in fact, recovering the plastic, so our, our mass recovery is, is probably significantly higher than Umicore. I understand that plastic gets burned off in their, their process. With respect to the local one that you mentioned, Neo Metals, Neo Metals is still at pilot stage, so we are physically in the business as a going concern. In fact, that business has been going now for four years, so it's not like we're fiddling around the, uh, the fringes and trying to find out just how you do it, we're actually doing it. So there's quite a contrast with respect to that. But I, I think on a global basis, the one thing that we do we do pride ourselves on is that very high mass recovery and getting some of those things that are somewhat, to some extent, unusual back into usable applications. Now, Lithium Australia is not just recycling. Could you just talk a little bit about your Lena process for recovering lithium from spodumene fines? And I, I believe the fines currently report to waste in most existing hard rock mines. Yeah, they do. It, it's not only fines. I guess it's probably more appropriately termed out-of-specification material. So it may be contaminated, may be fine, it may be a combination of both. What we did was uh, have a look at the aluminum industry and the technologies they used, and you'd probably be aware that Processing bauxite is generally done through a caustic digest process done in autoclaves and they convert the bauxite to alumina. We decided to take a similar sort of stand with spodumene and uh, run that through an autoclave with sodium hydroxide. You do get a phase change when that occurs. All lithium reports to one particular phase, which then is readily leachable. The interesting thing about that is. As that phase is generated in the autoclave, it rejects all the impurities. So it's uh, 
a process that is capable of operating with a high level of contamination. So fine material, OSPEC uh, concentrates, that's its forte. And we believe that, quite frankly, the the company that ultimately commercialises that technology will have a very big influence on the cost profile of uh, the lithium industry. And you've also moved downstream with your VSPC cathode powders business. You've got agreements with the Chinese battery producer DLG and also the cathode producer SDL to produce cathode materials. Could you talk a little bit about what's going on in that business? I've got to say there's a little bit of market confusion there. The deal, well, to start with, we produce cathode powders on a pilot scale in Brisbane. The focus is LFP. And in, incidentally, I always used to say that uh, LFP was gr- really great. You know, it's a, a very safe chemistry. It tends not to spontaneously combust. You don't get uh, thermal runaway, wide operating temperature range and so on and so forth. looks like the ultimate battery chemistry. And I used to say to people, the only only drawback is the energy density is a bit lower than NCM and NCA, so you wouldn't run your Tesla on LFP. Lo and behold, what's Elon Musk doing? He's done a deal with CATL and he's going to run his Teslas on LFP. So there goes my argument. But um, I think that's a great step forward because two-thirds of the automobiles produced in China, in fact, run on LFP. It's a a China-centric product and uh, very little of it's seen outside China in that sort of application. We see a fair bit in energy storage because it's great for that application, but far less in vehicles. But I, I think if Tesla do it, it will be an eye-opener and others will follow and they'll follow outside China. So we're focused on LFP. We make that LFP cathode powder in Brisbane. We've been exporting it to uh, China and Japan where it's been tested by battery producers. We have a deal with DLG, as you've mentioned, and that deal effectively says that if we can produce the cathode powder to their specification or higher specification at a comparable price, we will be treated as a preferred supplier of that material into their business. Now, the, the issue, of course, is one that we, we can produce certainly to the specification. That's not a problem. And the, the means by which we do that and its proprietary technology is quite different to anyone else in the marketplace and it results in very good quality control, both in terms of chemistry and particle size. So that, that's where we, we lead in the LFP field. But, of course, we only have a pilot plant. So what we've done, the the second leg of commercialising that and being able to provide DLG with the necessary requirements being cost and quality is to team up with an existing cathode producer in China to produce in China. And that's where SDL comes in. We have an agreement with SDL that is a three-phase agreement. First will be to produce cathode powder to our specification, but using their equipment. The second phase of that will be to bolt on our front end, which provides better quality control and produce effectively the VSP product, 100% VSP type product through a cathode plant in China, cathode powder plant, and then on-sell to DLG and commercialise that with other users. And then the third step will be to uh, build a cathode plant or cathode powder plant outside China to service destinations such as Europe when they listen to Elon Musk and turn everything into LFP and uh, Japan that uses quite a bit of it. There's 
a big movement, I think, on a global basis to replace lead acid batteries with LFP. And the reason behind that is uh, twofold. Ultimately, in mass production, it should be cheaper than uh, NMC and NCA. But it's much more tolerant. I've mentioned that it operates over a wide temperature range, but you can even operate those types of batteries without a battery management system. I'm not recommending that you do, but uh, you can. So you can make it a direct replacement for things like crank batteries in automobiles. You don't need additional electronics to run a battery, unlike NCM and uh, NCA. So I think lead-acid battery replacement in applications of that type and things like communication towers and what have you will certainly come to the fore on a global basis and create a much larger market for that type of cathode powder and the LFP battery across the board. So just coming back to the company, what sort of catalysts can investors expect over the next six months or so from you guys? Clearly, you'll uh, see, well, perhaps it's not clear, and I did say we subject to market conditions, but the plan is to spin out Envirostream and have that, that standalone. Uh, Lithium Australia will still be the controller of that company, but it will give uh, investors the opportunity to invest directly in the recycling part of our business rather than investing in the holding company that covers just about every aspect of battery technology. So that's that's one thing that will move forward fairly. We will see the construction of a leaner pilot plant under a co-funded arrangement with the government. On the VSPC side, we'll see a fair bit of progress on that deal that we've got with SDL, which should uh, result in commercial battery production using a VSP-type product uh, within the next 12 months and supply into markets other than China, we hope. We're, we're certainly having a good look at the Japanese market there. And one other thing that we haven't mentioned, and that is we have a co-funded grant from the Australian Federal Government and uh, other parties to develop a tram battery for application in Australia. Now, the uh, design criteria for that will be super rapid charge. We've teamed up with the University of Queensland CSIRO to do that. We're managing the project, by the way, so and a fairly substantial uh, financial contributor to it. And CSIRO as a partner have got about 10 years' experience in rapid charge battery technology, so that'll be uh, thrown into the, the pot along with our cathode manufacturing capability and uh, further capabilities through UQ. That program starts officially within the next month. So we'll see something there and ultimately what we hope to get out of that is a commercial battery pack that's capable of putting into a, a tram, also probably applicable for a lot of other transportation military applications, but the prime criteria, as I say, super rapid charge. And how much cash have you currently got as a company? That's an excellent question. Cash position at the 26th of the 1st, so that's a month ago, was $4.7 million. And last question, what's the most important thing that you think the market doesn't get about Lithium Australia? I think the market is starting to comprehend what the company is all about, and the company is about the uh, circular economy and the technologies that we've developed to dovetail one part of a circular economy into the next. And in doing that, what we've done is eliminated a lot of stages to get from raw materials through to lithium-ion batteries and 
on the other side of it, of course, from recycled materials back into lithium-ion batteries. And that's the part the public doesn't understand, that if you put these technologies together end-to-end, they actually eliminate quite a number of processing steps. And that vertical integration is capable of cutting a lot of the cost out of the battery that you and I end up buying as a consumer. That's what they don't understand. Adrian Griffin, Managing Director of ASX Listed Lithium Australia, thanks very much for your time today. Thank you, Matt. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for March. You can get more detail on any of the topics I've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.